1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, which is publishing its six thousandth edition this week. With me is commissioning editor Cheese Traitor and feudal landlady Thea Leonarduzzi. Hello, Thea. Hello. I've been here. I was working this out for a hundred issues. Have you? Yeah, I, oh, I, I, wow. more not just a little under, but I, I came in May. 2 years ago. Yeah. And that's basically 100 issues 50 a year. Yeah. How long have you been here?
2: Uh, First time, first incarnation. I started in 2010, about halfway through the year. Mm, And then I left in 2015, towards the end of the year. So that's a good five years.
1: So you're getting on for it. I started (laughs) writing the TLS in 2001. (laughs) That's nearly a thousand issues ago. But anyway, we've hit 6,000 issues and hopefully you want to grab hold of our souvenir copy this week. You can subscribe to the TLS and get six issues for just £6. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer section. In the Sixty page special this week. We reprint in full the first ever edition and also have lots of modern stuff around it too. Coming up on the show today, we'll talk to author and consulting editor of the TLS, Ruth Skurr, who has been reading back issues and can tell us how the paper has changed and our literary culture more broadly. And our lead essay this week is by the philosopher John Gray on the subject of the failure of liberalism. He'll be on the line. We'll finish with a couple of poems. Our poetry editor, Alan Jenkins, has chosen his two favourite poems from those published in the TLS over the last 6,000 issues. They are well worth waiting for. In 1902 the news was full of arguments about globalisation in the form of free trade, the seemingly endless iteration of the Irish question, the rise of a genuinely socialist political party which might discomfort the establishment, rumblings about our relationships with European states. Thank God things have moved on. The great John Steinbeck was born, as were Richard Rogers, Karl Popper, Ogden Nash, Elsa Lanchester, and the August Times newspaper gave birth to a literary supplement. It was not overly ambitious, it must be said. Its front page bashfully, even ruefully stated this... During the parliamentary session, literary supplements to the Times will appear as often as may be necessary in order to keep abreast with the more important publications of the day. Thankfully, that question of necessity was not left in the hands of literary journalists, who, we might imagine, might occasionally push for a hiatus or two, and the title soon became a weekly one. The first TLS ranged impressively in geography, two novels of Spain, an indictment of our Indian administration, the Chinese intellect, and, more modestly, a review of a book titled, "An appetisingly to this boorish editor, Scenes of a Rural Life in Hampshire Among the Manners of Bramshot. Our reviewer of that book, gloriously anonymous as they all were until 1974, is rather excited about it, praising it as exact, grateful that it is not frivolous. Hard to imagine there being much frivolity in the manners of Bramshot, but there you go. Anyway, the TLS has survived to publish another 5,999 issues. Along the way, it has acted as a sort of, albeit cranky, warped and esoteric, chronicle of the 20th century and beyond. Ruth Skurr, author, historian and literary critic, has been ploughing through some back issues and joins us on the phone now. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Stig. You've been looking at the previous thousandth issues of the paper. So that was in 1902, 1921, 1940, 59, 78 and 99. So basically 20 years, every 19 years of the last century. What struck you? What changes broadly have you seen?
3: Well, the standout difference for me is the number of women writing in the paper. So <laughs> yeah. for the first 1,000 issues, there were actually more clergymen than women. We had 81 That's clergymen, it 76 women out of 1,036 contributors. Yeah. But even when we get to issue 5,000 in 1999... There are just four women among 42 contributors. Now, today, that sounds completely ridiculous. And I started writing for the paper myself in 1997. And looking back, I wonder if I noticed at the time that women were such a minority. And what I would say is that I probably felt more grateful to be commissioned and published than most of my male contemporaries. And I probably tried harder as a result. That's
1: interesting. But, yeah. But was it even, a, I mean, it's an interesting point that, was it even noted or notable? Or was that just? did you just feel that's the way of the world? You know, you were about to enter academia, presumably, where you saw a world entirely populated by,
3: well, that, by men. that's exactly right. I mean, even now, I occasionally go to a meeting and suddenly think I feel a bit strange and realise it's because I'm the only woman in the room. Um, and that's changing. Obviously, uh, there's there's a many more women coming coming up behind me. But I think back in 1997, all I thought about was I mustn't mess up this
2: opportunity.
1: And you think you felt that more because of a woman? Did you, did you think that fear when you started writing for the paper? See, that would have been ten years later. That would presumably.
2: have been
1: 2010. Yeah, so a bit longer. Did you feel feel that uh, more pressure as a woman or?
2: Um difficult to remember probably i mean yeah. probably yeah
1: and it was a, did you notice that it was
2: mainly more men or in the yes pages? it was it was noticeable and also another,
3: I mean, related to this is even today. I notice that it's almost always men who write to me and say, "Could you arrange for me to review this book?"
2: Oh, and absolutely. I've very
3: rarely had an email from a woman like that. How, how about you? Thea? Absolutely,
2: absolutely the same. Um, and and another thing is that if you if you're looking for a reviewer and you're doing the approaching, you have to ask far more women before you get a a yes. Um, compared to men.
1: That's interesting because when I talk to radio producers they say the same thing that Mm. if you call a man and say would you like to come on the radio to talk about anything?
2: Yes, yes, I'm an expert (laughs) on anything.
1: Anything, (laughs) yes, I'll do it tomorrow and then you ask a woman and they say I'm not sure I'm the right person uh, to do that. Actually in March we were exactly 50-50 in terms of uh, writers in the paper which is certainly the first time that's ever happened in 6,000 issues. So that's changing. What do you think is the same, Ruth? What's the sort of is there a Is there a culture, is there a reaction to culture that that is still the same now as it was in 1902 or or thereafter?
3: For me, the, the broadest similarity is that right from the very beginning, the TLS was a journal of record, and it was attempting to cover as comprehensively as possible the significant books being published in English and even beyond that sometimes in other languages. And I thought it was very interesting looking back that in that... Period of time when the TLS was suspended for almost a year at the end of 1978 due to the print strike. The TLS staff were still keeping a log of the significant books appearing in that hiatus. And when the paper restarted, there were several issues devoted to catching up. Now, obviously, we can't cover everything, but I think the number and the range of books we review is unparalleled.
1: Do you think anyone can cover anything anymore? I I, I often think about this that. There must have been a period in book publication where you could more or less review everything significant, or even read everything significant. There's a famous—it might be Hazlitt, it might be someone else—who was known as the last person to have read everything mm. that had ever been published, because you yes. could just about do that. Now we're overwhelmed by by books. Do you, Do you think that's it's changed that we can't? No one can pretend to to be well, comprehensive I think anymore.
3: Absolutely right. Um, I mean, we couldn't possibly keep a a log of of even all the books that that were received or published. But I still think it's the case that, for example, for first novels, very often the TLS will be the only place to review them. That will be the only review that the author gets. And I think that aspiration towards being a journal of, of at least some kind of record hasn't changed and that's incredibly valuable
1: one of the questions that you you note in your piece that you know what's the function of literary criticism or indeed literary novels mm. do you think that's ever been answered do, do we have a place do we have have we as an institution or generally as a culture recognized the place of literature over the last hundred odd years
3: well i think that those func- the function of the literary novel and literary criticism are always going to remain open questions um there's always going to be dispute and disagreement about that. But what's clear is that at least in the TLS archive you get this rich record of what people since 1902 have thought the right answers to those questions might be. You might not agree with any particular reviewer or or their take on on what the literary novel's function is, but you see there this wonderful range of, of answers addressed to that question. And I was thinking about this, about the difference between reviewing and literary criticism. Because when I started writing reviews, um, some of my colleagues were actually very dismissive of the genre. And one of them said, you know, why would I care what a a random reviewer says? But I've always thought that kind of snobbery is is a really big mistake. And I personally have never thought of writing the reviews of, of books as they come out, sort of in the moment, very fresh, directly encountered as as any kind of jobbing journalism or you know here today gone tomorrow um i i always think that the the reviewer really owes it to the author to try and understand as as deeply and immediately as possible what happens in a particular book and whether or not it succeeds on its own terms
2: and in a sense those those reviews um are sort of like litmus tests for the wider culture, the wider literary culture. Presumably, looking through the archive, you saw the influence of literary theory, for example, wax and wane and wax and wane and uh, feminist criticism coming in, post-colonial criticism, kind of shaping the way that we write about things, the way that we receive books. Yes, that's absolutely
3: right. So those individual reviews,
2: they're, you know, they're oblique and sometimes quite quirky
3: windows onto the the culture and preoccupations of that time. And you sort of end up with this wonderful kaleidoscope of of, of the record and you can see these sort of individual pieces that that are the reviews. And as you say, I mean, some of them are very influenced by by waves of, of trends and criticism within the academic world, or some of them much more politically inflected, but there's still these discreet, intense responses to the books as they come out. But there
1: was a moment, was there, I mean, I remember reading David Lodge novels, one of the the trilogy, and it might be nice work, actually, the third Mm -hmm. one, where he talks about that period in the 80s where... Um, deconstruction and semiotics were so big an issue they were on the sort of almost on the front pages of newspapers they were mm. certainly in the review sections of newspapers they were in the features sections of newspapers there was a moment when literary criticism was kind of cool
3: Absolutely. Uh,
1: that's not true now is it
3: no, it's not. I mean, I've got very mixed feelings about that. I did a year of English during that period of time and gave it up because I found the the literary theory oh, directly. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I'm so supportive
1: of that. I hate. I have a row with with Andrew Irwin who works at the TS, He loves literary theory. I yeah. hate it. It's rubbish. I think it's boring.
3: Well, I think. That the wonderful thing is that you can have this whole range of of opinions. Probably should have and,
1: admitted that. Actually, <laughs>
3: you're
2: <biased>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But it's dry, isn't it? I mean, I I find I'm not not interested in in dry, Lacanian deconstructionist approaches to literature, because you lose the beating heart, and it seems to lose the point of writing books at all.
3: Well, I remember sitting um, in the library one day with this tall, tall pile of very, kind of, intense responses and and the theoretical explanations of what was going on in Virginia Woolf's novels. And this elegant little pile of the actual novels on the other (laughs) side and thinking, I don't want to read these books on the left, I'm just going to focus on the ones on the right. I mean, that's just my personal story. But ever, ever since that time, I always kept my connection with literature through reviewing. And so obviously when people... Say, oh, that's not real literary criticism. Um, I actually, you know, I beg to differ. I, I, I disagree. From from my point of view, it is a it is a very intense kind of response to to the text.
1: Do you think that we're the world of letters has, has shrunk? I don't know if everyone always thinks that there's a golden age just before them, but I I, I often think about this, and it comes up in this podcast quite often. You know, in the sixties, either. In the pages of the TLS or somewhere else, you could be reading Plath, Beckett, Nabokov, Burgess, and so on. You know, in the 20s, you could have had Wolf. You know, Just before that in the TLS, you could have had James and Hardy. You know, the modernist, great, rich period of, of brilliant writers. Do you think if we were to look around today, there are those people, do they exist at the same scale now? Or is this just what everyone always thinks?
3: Well, Stig, I'm an optimist. I think all, <laughs> yeah. all those figures from the past are still there. I think others have been added more recently, and I think more will arrive in the future. I I don't think that the novel is dead. I I don't think we're seeing a decline of of literary talent or literary aspiration. What I do think is two things. One, it is very hard to make money from writing, and perhaps it always was, except there might have been a brief period in the 80s and early 90s when, when it wasn't. But certainly, I think that now it's very, very difficult to make money from writing and the second problem is I think not so much that the world of of letters has shrunk but that access to it despite the internet despite all the new ways of circulating it is actually harder and harder and I think one of the reasons for that is the decline in the public libraries I think there are many many children in Britain who can't read children who don't have books I'm personally a great supporter of um, the Give a Book charity which tries to to bring books into prisons, primary schools, places where actually for all of the wealth of our literary inheritance right now, there are people who who don't have access to it.
1: So that's a slightly, over the course of 116 years that we've been talking about, that's a slightly downbeat view. Do you think that's got worse then?
3: Well, certainly, I mean, if I think about my own childhood, I I borrowed books from the public library um, and even when we lived... In areas where there wasn't easy access to a public library, there were mobile libraries. Yeah. Um, you know, even in in the East Anglia villages, when I first first moved here back in in the late nineties, there was still a mobile library that came out to to the villages for people who were elderly, etc my great grandmother all the anecdotes about her about how whenever a new book came into the library it had to be set aside because she 'd read absolutely everything else
1: so she, she said, had read everything she, yeah. she
3: had read everything she was the, the hazlet of the area and so there was a new book that was said right right send that send that straight to Maud, you know, and then everybody else couldn't have a go so I think i i you know obviously there were many other related issues and and questions here but mm-hmm. I think the other thing of course is bookshops I mean you know I think the presence in high streets I remember so vividly so fondly just going in to the bookshops and thinking well what shall i read next and browsing in a way that's quite actually quite hard to do on the internet
1: yeah uh well we're going to talk about uh, later in may for the hay festival we're probably going to do something on libraries and, and looking back at their influence on people uh just to finally finish then uh, to cheer us up have you a favorite reviewer from the time reading give well, us a, give us a name
3: I think it has to be uh, Virginia Woolf, probably for me and for <laughs> yeah. everyone else, but, but yeah. it's because that's too predictable. Personally, when I started reviewing, I always looked back to what Lorna Sage had done, and um, somebody once told me that when she was applying for promotion, the panel said, send us a file of your TLS reviews, and I used to think I want that to be me.
1: Oh, well, Ruth. Thank, thank God it was, it is you. And uh, <laughs> ever since then, you've been writing for us. Ruth, thank you so much uh, for joining okay. us today.
2: Bye, bye. Do
1: you have a favourite, dear? Well, I mean, you can, I'd say Virginia Woolf.
2: Well, I would say Virginia Woolf. That that that's a given. Probably someone like Eric Korn. You okay. know, the kind of person who could just write about anything from a novel to an encyclopedia of toads or or whatever with equal yeah. <laughs> with equal oh, I'd, re- and, I'd read a piece on codes actually <laughs>
1: now that you mention it does that encyclopedia exist?
2: I don't know it should do I'm sure it does yeah,
1: if it doesn't it, it should do
2: <laughs> how about you?
1: I'm trying to think back to the time when I started reading Funny enough, enough, Ruth, when she started in 97, there was Rob McFarlane who, who mm. started and He introduced me to the fiction editor. The fiction pages of the TLS always had these... James Wood started yeah, in it the was, fiction pages. There it, was a, there was it's a whole... It's always
2: been an access point. Yeah,
1: and I was 21. I wrote to the fiction editor of the TLS and said, can I review a book? And she sort of sent me one, mm. uh, randomly, more or less, and she didn't know who I was. And... Uh, I started writing then, and I, I always remember the fiction pages. And I think we're continuing this: mm. that people who just want to write, who might be a bit young yeah. and up and coming, so I've always seen that in the fiction pages of good, good young writers who've yeah. probably gone on to to, to to greater things.
2: Yeah, I think also what you what, what we get in Ruth's piece is this really clear idea of the TLS. It's really satisfying uh, image of the TLS as this kind of crucible, in a sense, um, where people write things and then other people respond to them. So um, there's normally,
1: <laughs> normally moaning. Uh, no, actually, not not necessarily in, in, in not necessarily
2: on the letters pages, <laughs> but there's a bit where uh, Ruth is talking about um, Hester Chapman, um, who's writing a, a column. I think it is in in uh, the three thousandth issue uh, of the paper, and she's talking about currents uh, trends in. Uh, historical and literary biography and she lists these four sins that even the best of biographers might succumb to and she says one is dullness two deliberate falsification and willful misunderstanding three falling in love with the subject and four the application of modern standards to past customs Uh, and principles and then exactly ten ten years later you get Lady Antonia Antonia Fraser publishing her first book Mary Queen of Scots uh, which Ruth says proved Chapman wrong but I love this idea of Antonia Fraser sitting there uh, reading this and, and and feeling like I want to write the book about queens of England that uh, that Chapman has
0: sort of derided
2: yeah
1: in,
0: yeah. Its, in its in its current form
1: lovely lovely. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited
0: time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: We have an essay this week on the state of Western liberalism from the political philosopher John Gray, Gray begins, provocatively enough, for liberals, the recent transformation of universities into institutions devoted to the eradication of thought crime must seem paradoxical. And he goes on to argue that the policing of opinion has become established in societies that believe themselves to be freer, that is, more liberal, than they have ever been before. When Chinese students come to British universities, Gray says, one of the first things they learn is that self-censorship or intellectual orthodoxy among students and faculty leaves no need for authoritarian involvement. An inquisitorial culture has taken over. This we are calling the cult of hyper-liberalism, and it's on the rise, pushing the liberalism of old, the liberalism in which previous generations have believed, to the margins, or in fact, into a kind of gagged opposition. So, what distinguishes disciples of hyperliberalism from the liberalisms we knew before? Do they actually have more in common than they think? This religious language, by the way, cult, belief, disciples, is not incidental. On the line to tell us much, much more is John Gray himself. Hello, Hello. John. Hi. Let's begin, if we may, by defining some terms. What is hyperliberalism? What characterises it? And what are some of the main ways in which at least superficially, it appears to differ from previous understandings of liberalism.
4: I think liberalism began maybe earlier than most of us uh, imagine in the uh, period of the European wars of religion. And it began as a project of toleration among practices and beliefs that everyone knew would always remain different and always remain in contention. In other words, it began as a, an attempt to uh, find peaceful and even perhaps productive coexistence among communities with um, deeply divergent uh, worldviews and values, which no one expected to converge. And so an assumption of permanent dissensus, if you like, was built into liberalism in the past. But at some point in the intervening several hundred years, perhaps quite recently or maybe a bit earlier in the time of John Stuart Mill in the um, mid-Victorian period, um, liberalism, I think, began to shift to a view more like that of what I call the hyper-liberals nowadays, um, whose project is not to find a modest vivendi among views and values that will always remain different but instead to drive out of society, to drive out of, of the human world uh, uh, values and ways of life uh, and uh, beliefs that they judge to be illiberal. In other words, it's the idea that a, a fully liberal society wouldn't be one which practiced the kind of um, deeply embedded and secure tolerance. Uh, it would be one in which uh, illiberal views or views that judge to be illiberal, and, uh, illiberal ways of life had been uh, eradicated. And I think that's a fundamental shift whenever it happened. And you can see that now in um, campus attempts, uh, insignificant as they may be in themselves, to silence certain views as being unspeakable, as being so illiberal, so retrograde, so reactionary, even though maybe only 10 years ago they were thought of as progressive and liberal, they're now considered so reactionary that they can't even be voiced, they can't even be, they shouldn't be part of discourse. They have to be excluded from discourse. And that's a fundamental shift from quite a few older liberalisms.
1: Are there any opinions or topics that you think are so beyond the pale that they shouldn't be voiced? So is, is the extension of what you're saying that that we should be live in a society which is sufficiently tolerant and liberal that we can tackle Uh, egregious opinions on their own ground and defeat them? Or are there things beyond the pale, do you feel?
4: Well, there are things beyond the pale. Uh, I'm not a free speech absolutist. And um, one of the things I discuss in the essay that you're publishing in your 6,000th edition (laughs) is the rise of what I take to be straightforward anti-Semitism in some parts of British politics and in some uh, student bodies. Because there's a difference between debating Complex issues on which uh, there are and always have been a wide range of opinions, issues such as the costs and benefits of European colonialism, for example, or the issue of when Soviet communism became repressive, was it with Stalin or was it with was it as I tend to think uh, with lenin there's a difference between debating those issues and uh, forms of speech which involve outright and incontrovertible. Uh, falsifications and denials of fact. So, although I am not proposing uh, that, for example, Holocaust denial be uh, in itself criminalised as it is in some countries, I do think that's a radically different thing. Uh, radically is that true of all? Th- is that true
1: of all racism? Is that true of people? who want to make claims about uh, black people, uh, which you've seen throughout history. I mean, the Victorian period is a really good example. of The period of John Stuart Mill was 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 filled with the sort of pseudoscience of people making uh, outraged and untrue claims about the black race. Um, is that the same thing as, as Holocaust denial? No, now, I don't do think feel?
4: it is. Well, you know, Mill himself uh, in his um, essay on liberty, his celebrated essay on liberty, says that the principle of liberty only applies to nations that have emerged from their childhood. And the Child nations were the majority of the human species at that time, all of Africa, possibly China, uh, which he said had become stationary, uh, that had become senile rather than than infantile. Um, I mean, so I think think there's a specific um, issue of denying an incontrovertible fact. Clearly, um, racism of any kind involves um, um, some denials of fact, but not usually of a single historical event of enormous importance not normally that. It's normally a wider pattern of thought, which has been found not only among historians, but also among um, biologists and anthropologists, including some who represent themselves as progressive. Racism in general is usually a more complex pattern of thinking. The flat denial of an actual event is different. And so I think whether or not it deserves to be in a different legal category, it's in a different category of discourse. And what I find paradoxical and puzzling is that the same people who uh, want to close down debate about uh, colonialism, which I think should be debated openly and freely, are sometimes among those who defend Holocaust denial as an exercise in free speech. I think that's a paradox, if not a contradiction. But should, should you not support, I suppose, both? Should you not
1: support, even though Holocaust denial is flatly wrong, it's also something that can be addressed in an open society through debate in the same way that racism can so at one level you could be more absolute could you not and say i can tackle racism or or transphobia is another good example in terms of university campuses i can tackle holocaust denial in the same manner because it still involves an assertion of either civilized discourse or an argument that's being made that would convince more people
4: is it an argument that's being presented
1: or is it? Uh, um, well, it's it's a reality that people believe it. So, I mean, is it better? Is it not better? I suppose to question and challenge that than than to ban it is where this this eventually gets to, isn't it? Is it easier to sort of say to well, people? Well, the point
4: is that some. The point is, I I think you see. I don't see why one must adopt an, an absolute disposition on 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 these issues. Why one must lump all uh, discourse um, in the same um, model? I think that's um, and of course the people who argue for treating uh, Holocaust denial on a free speech basis don't themselves do that, as I've just pointed out. Many of them, at least, certainly some of them, um, do support curb, do think that anyone who um, says, well, look, um, colonialism in India or Africa or wherever else was a highly complex phenomenon. Belgian colonialism was different from French or French from Portuguese, British from all of those from British, they changed over time. And it, it, might, have, it might have had some benefits as well as um, uh, uh, many wrongs and crimes. Many of the same hyper-liberals want to expel debate on those issues while opening it on the issue of whether the Holocaust actually happened. And I see that as one of what the Marxist thinker um, Antonio Gramsci called the morbid symptoms of a political culture and of a more general culture in a kind of it's a morbid symptom that this one area of discourse on the on the holocaust be singled out for defense on free speech grounds while many others are excluded from free speech and i don't think see at the level of logic you might be correct stick but i don't think logic is what moves people at this uh, 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 the, <laughs> And the, the, <laughs> yeah. the present time well, it's a morbid symptom of regression in the entire political culture and in the culture more generally, that Holocaust denial should have been singled out to be defended on free speech grounds.
2: Talking about regression, I suppose you draw a parallel with our current hyper-liberalism and Mm. and the Bolsheviks and other Mm. uh, millenarian or enlightenment Mm. projects. Part of the, the thing being that we're, we're, we're obsessed, we're too guided by this version of history in which things and people are getting better and better mm, and, and mm. closing the door on the past and, and just mm. kind of pushing it aside and not mm. dealing with it allows us to take another step forward towards mm. betterment. Is that part of the problem? And, and if, if so, I mean, what, if anything is the answer, what, what comes next? <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people who you know prescribe for what comes best generally underestimate the seriousness of the difficulties that they're confronting. But I I would say this, that no one, of course, denies that um, improvement has happened in many stretches of history. Uh, The Greeks and the Romans and many ancient cultures recognized periods, even whole ages, of improvement in which art and culture would flourish, wealth would be accumulated, prosperity would spread. And there would be peace and a a, a reasonably high level of uh, coexistence among people um, uh, rather than war and decline uh, and um, uh, the collapse of learning and knowledge. So the idea that uh, there are periods of um, advance or improvement is accepted by everyone. But what is unusual about Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment societies is they believe these are cumulative, that's to say that what has been gained in one period of improvement, can't be, perhaps quite quickly and suddenly, lost um, in another. They think that perhaps there'll be periods of regression in the sense that six steps are taken forward and then two steps back, Uh, but then uh, advance continues. The idea which, in the pre-modern world, in the ancient world, which was taken for granted, which was accepted by everybody, that periods of civilization and of advance and of peace and of tolerance and so on, are regularly followed by periods of war and decline and barbarism is now almost one of those unspeakable ideas that no one wants to consider because they consider it shuts off hope. It uh, deprives them of the energy to change the world unless they believe they can change the world irreversibly.
1: But I, I guess if we look, I mean, in the area of discourse, I'm, 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 where does political correctness, in mm. your view, come into this? Because you can make an argument, can you not? That in if, mm. it, Either you object to it or you don't. But the discourse that was going on, say, in this country in the 1970s, in the area of race, mm. it was a measurably more mm. racist, more openly mm. racist place than it is now. So that mm. appears to be progress. Do you believe that we've become kind of cultish, collectively, uh, in the service of trying not to offend people, that's what we and that is a danger that we start to lose benefits and it starts to count on the tally against
4: us well, certainly, any public discourse which is regulated as an as by an overriding aim never to offend anyone, subverts the whole argument, even in mill, for tolerance. I mean he says explicitly actually one of his maxims is offence by itself is never, never. A reason for curbing free speech now of course we have laws on the books against racist speech which i support because that's uh, an issue an area where the uh, offense that was caused was um uh uh, connected with actual attacks on people forms of discrimination and unjust treatment in other words it wasn't just offense as offense it was um an offense to feelings it was a broader pattern of discrimination or harm so once again, I wouldn't want to take a, uh, in any society, I wouldn't want to k- take a, an absolutist position. But the point is we can't, by extending the prohibitions based on f- offense to wider and wider areas, there is a clear risk, first of all, of limiting open speech and expression. But secondly, there's a, there's a clear risk of um, excluding large parts of the population. Yeah. Um, what you do with... 40% of undesirables apart from tell them that they're undesirable well, that's, um, and, that, and that's a bigger question then about polarisation which but ch- polarisation of course can result from widely applied political correctness
2: um, and in a sense in your in your piece you can see so clearly how I mean because you break our, our particular position down and, and it all starts on, on the campus but then mm. it's it sort of like concentric circles mm. um, moving from there to the political spheres well the, the campus
4: is one of the morbid symptoms so yeah. to speak um, in itself, as I say in, in the piece, it might not matter very much, but it does reflect um, larger shifts in politics. And of course, one of the difficulties of any, I mean, of fundamentalism in religion, for example, of forms of religion which view any other type of religion, even if it's any any other variety of the religion itself, as composed of upper states or um, uh, people who are beyond the pay. One of the dangers of that, of course, is it makes civil peace impossible. It, it means that, that there is a kind of low level, uh, at best, kind of uh, enmity throughout society. And I think there's some risk of um, the cult, because it is, in some respects, cult-like of hyper having precisely that effect. It either produces apathy among large sections of the population or people who simply withdraw from debate withdraw from public discourse or public life because it, they either because of fear, the damage to their careers as some academics have done, or just because they find it too virulent and, and unpleasant yeah. to be really put up with. They just exit and say, well, get on with it. I'll just ignore it. Or there is active participation on a high level and it's extremely poisonous. It's extremely rancorous. And I think both of those realities, after all, are
1: are realities of the present time, are they not? Well, indeed. And to be honest, an awful lot of what you say tends to point to other issues, which tend to point to other issues. We could have talk about this for an awful long yes. time. Uh, John, <laughs> great. Thank you so Thank much you, for Steve. joining us today. That's almost all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to John Gray and Ruth Skur. Next week, we have a special podcast as we debate the best British and Irish novelists. The TLS has conducted a poll of industry figures, and critic Alex Clark has contributed an essay on the subject. She will be in the studio with fiction editor toby Lichtig, thea and me now before we go it's fair to say that one of the achievements of the tls over the last century has been to publish original poetry to end the show we have asked alan jenkins the deputy and poetry editor of the paper to pick just two of the thousands we have run and read them for us uh, alan hello hi uh, who did you have to choose from it's it's quite a list of 20th century poets it's an extraordinary list i mean looking back through this little book that we pr- we produced for the tls's
5: 100th anniversary mm. all those years ago a century of poems that uh, i put together with mick imlar the poetry editor at that time um there's just a fantastic number of all all kind of kinds types range of poetry and from the very 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 best and most important poets of the 20th century and of this century too mm. now we're coming into quite a way into this century, from Thomas Hardy uh, to Philip Larkin's great poem, O'Bard. We go through uh, Wallace Stevens, Robert Frost, John Berryman, uh, John Ashbery, James Fenton, all the way up to sort of, Simon Armitage, Carol Ann Duffy. We've had Edith Sitwell, we've had Elizabeth Jennings, we've had Patricia Beer, Sylvia Plath. I mean, all the great names of 20th century poetry appear, and of course all, uh, uh, great many names, hundreds of names, literally, who haven't become great names, but have uh, written and we've published very, very memorable and beautiful poems.
1: Which is, yeah, lovely. Um, Who have you picked them? Which two have you you picked out of that incredible list? um,
5: uh, Poems that are probably not going to be, or a poem anyway, it's not going to be tremendously well known um, by DJ Enright who's uh, not these days thought of even perhaps principally as a poet but he was a very very good poet and uh, he was also a tremendous reviewer um, a literary critic and and sort of wrote for the TLS for his whole sort of working life really for over 40 years I think he wrote brilliant reviews of English and German literature um, and that's probably how we thought of him you know principally at the paper but he was also a really excellent poet and this poem really going through this book I had to sort of choose almost at random the poems that I <laughs> yeah. you know were going were still speaking to me and, and Meant something to me particularly, and that could have been, you know, by W. H. Auden or Lou McNeese It could have been by Sylvia Plath, as I say. It could have been, a, or Seamus Heaney, Paul Muldoon, Joseph Brodsky, a, a multitude. But Dennis Enright, D. J. Enright's poem, "The Laughing Hyena," sort of stood out because its ending seems to me to resonate tremendously with our day. It just has this marvelous ending. Um, "The Laughing Hyena" is a, is a painting by the Japanese artist Hokusai. So it's kind of ekphrastic poem. It's a poem about a, a picture, an image, um, which he d- d- sort of describes very beautifully and in a very detailed way. And then just the, the poem turns tremendously into another thing at the end, into this very sort of sinister and mm. s- strange, sort of a, an ending full of foreboding and uncertainty, which seems to be very much <laughs> yeah. of our time. <laughs> yeah. um, so from, from 1951, I think this still, still speaks... And then us. what will do is, and what's the other one going to be? The other one will be Carol Ann Duffy, um, yep. a poem in your mind, which I think is one of her very best poems. And again, I mean, it's it's a very simple, straightforward poem. Actually, it's like a sort of beautiful daydream. But again, it it, it spoke to me very much at the moment because a lot of people are thinking of, you know, and it, it starts the other country, which became the title of her I think third volume and one of her very best volumes it's an early Carol Ann Duffy from 1990 but tremendously good and a lot of people I think in the state England is in at the moment are thinking about another country
1: and sort of daydreaming of being elsewhere which is really what this poem is well listen we will very shortly hear them Alan Jenkins reading those two poems until next week from Thea and from me goodbye
5: DJ Enright The Laughing Hyena by Hokusai For him, it seems, everything was molten. Court ladies flow in gentle streams, or gathering lotus strain sideways from their curving boat. A donkey prances, or a kite dances in the sky, or soars like sacrificial smoke. All is flux. Waters fall and leap, and bridges leap and fall. Even his tortoise undulates, and his spring hat is lively as a pool of fish. All he ever saw was sea, a sea of marble splinters, long bright fingers claw across his pages, fiords and islands and shattered trees. And the laughing hyena, cavalier of evil, as volcanic as the rest, elegant in a flowered gown, a face like a bomb burst, featured with fangs and built about a rigid laugh, ever moving like a pond's surface where a corpse has sunk. Between the raised talons of the right hand rests an object. At rest, like a pale island in a savage sea, a child's head, immobile, authentic, torn and bloody, the point of repose in the picture, the point of movement in us. Terrible enough, this demon, yet it is present and perfect, firm as its horns, curling among its thick and handsome hair. I find it an honest visitant, even consoling, after all those sententious phantoms, Choked with rage and uncertainty, who grimace from contemporary pages. It, at least, knows exactly why it laughs. Caroline Duffy, In Your Mind. The other country, is it anticipated or half remembered? Its language is muffled by the rain which falls all afternoon one autumn in England and in your mind you put aside your work and head for the airport with a credit card and a warm coat you will leave on the plane. The past fades like newsprint in the sun. You know people there. Their faces are photographs on the wrong side of your eyes. A beautiful boy in the bar on the harbour serves you a drink. What? Ask you if men could possibly land on the moon. A moon like any orange drawn by a child. No, never. You watch it peel itself into the sea. Sleep. The rasp of carpentry wakes you. On the wall, a painting lost for thirty years renders the room yours. Of course. You go to your job, right at the old hotel, left, then left again. You love this job. Apt sounds mark the passing of the hours. Seagulls, bells, a flute practicing scales. You swap a coin for a fish on the way home. Then suddenly you are lost but not lost, dawdling on the blue bridge, watching six swans vanish under your feet. The certainty of place turns on the lights all over town, turns up the scent on the air. For a moment you are there in the other country, knowing its name, and then a desk, a newspaper, a window, English rain.